morning, church. Good to see you today. Grab your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Jonah. You're going to find that towards the back of the Old Testament after Obadiah and before Micah. As Jason mentioned earlier, if you uh, would like to grab one of the Bibles in the back to, to turn with us, we'll also have the scriptures on the screen and there's uh, notes there. You can um, capture what we studied in God's Word today. Uh, what a joy it is to be with you. Uh, to be back from Jennifer and I's getaway for our anniversary. We had a wonderful time at our marriage seminar yesterday with many of you, and um, just thankful for God's work in and through us in this season. As we concluded our second sermon, uh, this series in Jonah, last time we were together, Jonah was sinking into the deep of the Mediterranean Sea, the end of Jonah chapter 1. It's pretty safe to say that Jonah is resolved to die as he sinks into the dark depths. Uh, He has worked hard to rebel against God's command to go to Nineveh and to call out against it so that they would repent. Jonah would rather die than be part of the restoration of such an evil enemy as Nineveh. Uh, And yet God is committed to see Nineveh repentant and in his divine providence and purposes wills that Jonah will be the one to preach to that lost city. Uh, It is here that we often find ourselves uh, dead set on what our flesh wants and stubborn as a mule uh, to have it our way despite knowing what God calls us to. God, whose will and purpose will be at work in our lives. Um, and, and we must see that. We must see that God will have his way every time. Uh, that, that his will, the will of his decree, will be fulfilled. And to the point where, where he will use all that is in his arsenal. And think of all of creation. All that is, 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 is under his control uh, that as we're going to see today, to, uh, as we look to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, um, the sovereignty of God uh, at work in many of these factors uh, in, in God seeing through his plan uh, for Jonah and for these people. Uh, a side note about Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. In the Hebrew text, this verse is actually a part of the beginning of chapter 2. It's the English translation that separates it into the end of chapter 1. And uh, I, I read it well as a good introduction to what we're going to do as chapter 2, so that's why I've included it here. Look with me at Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, as we begin our exposition in this part of the passage today. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now this great fish as defined here, has got to be one of the most controversial fish in history. Uh, many have believed or, or naively spoken for a long time that this is a whale that swallowed Jonah. And, and maybe it was. But Scripture clearly and only refers to it as a great fish. Which means we don't refer to it as something more or other than that. If you're thinking, no, no, I'm pretty sure it was a whale, my encouragement is that you might be thinking of another story. Pinocchio got swallowed up by a whale. (laughs) 
And so that's not this story. This is Jonah. Uh, and really beyond that, the real debate is about this whole event happening. Can a large fish or a whale swallow a man whole? The man lives in the belly of the fish for three days and then is spit up onto the land to go about his life. Is this real? Did this happen? Can this be? And it's important that we see that God's made clear this is history. This is not fable. It, it, it's, it's not uh, story or, or allegory uh, or parable. Uh, the Bible is the living word of God. And God's word says that this happened. And so we need to trust that. Now, despite that, many have searched for or longed for to, to uncover other stories about people who have been swallowed by whales or large fish and ha- have lived to tell about it uh, as some way to help validate that this happened. But I would just simply contest this, church, and our faith at work should, should do this. If the creator of the universe wants to swallow a man into a fish, he can do it. Amen? He controls all things. He set creation into existence with the word. He sustains every molecule and atom of our very bodies at this very moment. He is working every detail in creation under his sovereign control. What he wills to do with it, he's going to do. And over the years, mankind has kind of been guilty of, of, of taking the central message of the, the book of Jonah and, and specifically this verse and, and, and we in this section of the, of the narrative and, and we make it so much about this big fish swallowing Jonah into the belly. And, and when we overfocus on that, we miss the bigger point. The, the point is not the fish. Just like the point is not the serpent, or or the point is not the Red Sea, it it always has been and always will be Jesus. What matters most is what do you believe about Jesus? To get caught up focusing on the great fish causes us to lose focus on the great God, and so we we must be careful as we work through God's Word in in. in places like this and then I in my prayers that you would see with me the reality that, that just like you and I showed up into his epic already in progress that all of this everything that we're in is a part of his story uh, set in motion for his fame and his purposes just like you and I as we talked about in the sermon series prior to this one, we're part of the supporting cast. Our sin wants the spotlight. Our sin wants it our way. But we're part of his supporting cast because it's ultimately about him, life, this creation, his fame. We got to see as well today that the great fish is just a walk-on. It's, it's in, in the amazing testimony of the sovereignty of God and the glory of God, the grace of of the great God. Sinclair Ferguson said it well, the deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet. 
Not in the, in the real of nature, but in the real of grace. And so in this prayer we're about to study here in the opening verse of chapter 2, uh, we're going to see the, the restoration that God's going to begin to do in Jonah's life. Uh, and we're going to see, and I want you to notice as we, as we take off here, where rebellion has occurred, confession must begin. Repentance must be had in order for the heart and life to be set on a new course that honors God. We don't skip over, we don't, we don't disobey God and rebel against Him and then just wake up a new day and, and go about it. No, there must be a reality of confession of sin, to see our sin, not just to see the horizontal and the consequence, but to see where you're at with God and what you've done to betray Him, to really confess it as sin and then to begin to repent in a course whereby you're looking to honor Him, not make it about us, but ultimately Him. This story of Jonah is a story of rebellion and repentance. It's a story that points us as well to our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ himself. It serves as a much needed reminder that anything that we do that is out of step with the gospel is sin. So in case you're looking for some additional validation of this pretty amazing thing, this Gigantic fish swallows this man. He's there three days, chilling out in his digestive system. and gets thrown up. You're like, all right, really? In case you're looking for some additional validation, God's word provides that. In the testimony of God the Son, Jesus Christ himself, to verify this, this event of Jonah is history. We read this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. It's powerful. We looked at it once already. Let's look at it again together. Matthew 12. 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus confirms that Jonah was in fact swallowed up in the great fish for three days. He uses this point to point out the three calendar days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, by which that he would be in the grave following the cross and before his mighty resurrection. Jesus points out that God uses Jonah to help the wicked Ninevites repent. And now one greater than Jonah is here for the repentance of a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation who are guilty in sin and in desperate need of a Savior. All the victorious figures of the Old Testament point to the one who ultimately brings an undeserving people, eternal victory. That is Jesus Christ himself. Oh, how I pray that, that you know him as Lord and Savior of your life. I, I pray that you too would be humble to re- confess your sin and, and repent of your rebellion against the holy God 
against his revealed will for your life according to Scripture. That you would trust him and serve him the rest of your days. So let's go together into chapter 2. Let's dive into uh, the great fish and, and even further into the heart and the prayer of the wayward prophet Jonah and see what his response is to this great miracle of God in saving him from the depths of the sea. Jonah chapter 2, 1 through 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. The fact that Jonah calls out to God in prayer is a great sign of his turning back to God. He is no longer running or rebelling or putting God out of his sight and mind. He is turning to God in prayer. He's moving his heart and his mind to the Lord and God's power, God's plan and work for Jonah's life. Church, prayer is a great and powerful gift of God for us. Not because we use it to get what we want, but because, first and foremost, it is a great and beautiful way to connect to the Holy God, God Himself. Prayer is less about getting what we want and more about joining God in what He's going to do. I pray that your prayer life is not impersonal, that you simply throw your request and your demands at him and, and just kind of hope that he's going to see it through. How, how impersonal. Don't, don't treat God like the, the random person on the other side of the counter whom you simply want to perform a task for you. No, instead we need to see prayer first and foremost about a sweet relationship with God. About yielding to God our desires of our heart to to speak honestly with him, but then trusting him as God and wanting ultimately his will to be done for his view and his purposes for you in your life are far better than your own. Our time in prayer needs to be much more about time with God and less about the things on the docket that we have to talk about. See this as the first thing this moment means to Jonah. He's no longer ignoring or rebelling against God. He's running to him, crawling into his sovereign arms, wanting to share his heart with God in relationship, in faith, in obedience, in repentance. Notice Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried out, and you heard my voice. The Lord hears you. The Lord is present in your darkest hour. No sin or rebellion can create barriers or distance by which the Lord is not present in your life, church. You've been forgiven by the blood of Christ. You've been restored to an active relationship with the living God. Church, He hears you. He sees you. He knows you. Why would we not cry out to Him in prayer? 
the one who is able to help you is more present than anything in the midst of your darkness and your struggle. He's so very present. He's so very accessible. And yet, it is only our pride or our sin that causes us to stay in the hole, head down, to ignore the source of our help and our salvation. See with me the the patient grace and love of God in these days or weeks or even seasons where we set Him aside and we go about our lives for our own agenda, with our own priorities, for our own satisfaction of, of the idols of our hearts. He is so patient and yet so present. When we cry out, He hears and He answers in His perfect time according to His perfect will. May we be a praying people. A people so ready to walk and talk with our Lord along the way. A people so aware of His mighty and loving presence in our daily lives, thoughts, and emotions. Look with me at verse 3. Jonah 2, 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the dark of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Notice here that Jonah says in his prayer to God, you cast me into the deep. But that's contrary to what we read in Jonah chapter 1, verse 15, whereby it's revealed to us that the sailors are the ones who picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. But what Jonah has a clear understanding here is that the sovereign Lord appointed the storm and Jonah's being thrown into the sea. He sees the providence of God. This is a beautiful picture and place where we see the primary and secondary causes that we often like to talk about when we study Scripture. God, who is sovereign, ultimately in control of all things, is the primary cause. But he often uses secondary causes, such as willing people, to fulfill his perfect will. The point here is that Jonah rightly sees God at work in his being appointed to be thrown into the deep. The waves and the sea, Jonah rightly explains, belong to God. They are a tool in his mighty and sovereign hand. The sovereign God uses secondary causes to do his perfect will. And what is in view here even in the great fish swallowing Jonah, thereby saving him from certain death and sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Oh, how much we need to slow down to give way too much sinful credit to happenstance. And luck, there just happened to be this big, massive, great fish that was hungry to swallow a whole guy, happened to be in the right place in the right time. Let me ask you today, do you have, be honest, a a right and a full view? I mean a very keen sense that every moment of creation, every change in temperature, every variation in the wind, every roll of a single grain of sand that rolls on the beach is ultimately in the hand of the Almighty God. 
Beloved, there should be an ever-present awareness that overcomes our sinful apathy for our flesh to recognize the active presence and activity of God in every single moment of our life that he ordains for us to live. Jonah rightly sees with Paul that from him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 8, I mean eleven thirty six. God's sovereign hand and will was clearly at work in Jonah's life. This is we talked about a few weeks ago in part two. The, the storm is the mercy of God at work. God is wrecking his life to bring him to the thing he needs the most, himself, the Lord. How is the mercy of God at work in your life? By bringing struggle and turmoil so that you would finally release your sinful, idolatrous grip on the things that are, will never fulfill so that you would finally have a right grip on the one thing that can satisfy and purpose your life, the Lord himself. This is the mercy of God at work. When God is rightly and fully seen and sensed as the sovereign Lord that he really is, then the groundwork is laid in our lives for true spiritual restoration. It is our sinful, fleshly, self-centered view of our lives and happenings around us that removes our need for Seeing God as he is, sovereign, and and, and to be awakened unto his unavoidable work and will. It is often in the hardest waves of the storms that God awakens us for some of the sweetest graces he has for us. To provide an opportunity for us to yield our sinful path and cling to to, to the... routines and the, and, and, the, and the methods and the ideologies of the world and to just be utterly His. To trust in Him alone. Look with me at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. King David spoke similarly of what this distance can feel like from the Lord. Uh, He drew near to pray and cry out to him as well. We see this in Psalm 31, 22. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Jonah says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Here he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem, like I'm going to go back home again to my people. But instead, he's looking heavenward. He's looking to the reign of God in his holy temple forever. He's looking to God in the promise of the Messiah. The, The promised Messiah, Jesus himself, is the antitype, the one who fulfills all that the, that the temple represents. The one who is our hope and salvation. Apply this to your life. When you are laying in the bottom of your pit, a pit created by your rebellion and your sin and your selfishness, do you correct 
your fleshly feelings that maybe God has forsaken you and return to the reality of the gospel at work in your life that he has provided a redeemer that you did not deserve and given you a gift for which you will forever praise him that he has you secure in his eternal grip the reality church of our adoption in Christ is such good news it should overcome any temporary hardship we're facing the living hope within us as Christians needs to bring out of us a a, a worship for him a trust in him and it needs to put off any fleshly feeling that he's distant or uninvolved or not doing it the way we think he should No, instead we are secure. Instead we rest in our living hope we have in Christ. Peter says this so well in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-9. Listen to his words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen? Jonah says, I shall look upon your holy temple again. Every one of us in Christ will dwell with him in holy heaven forever. Look with me at verse 5 and 6. Jonah 2, 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped up around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This part of Jonah's prayer is so reminiscing of 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 other scriptures and testimonies we see in Holy Scripture. We see this, these very same words and, and, uh, and, and phrases used in the psalmist. A, a couple examples, Psalm 18, 4 through 6. See how wonderfully similar these words are. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. And to my God, I cried for help. 
from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. In this, we are reminded of the depth of our depravity in our sin that the Lord in his grace saved us from. Consider these words when you think about the full and stark reality of your own sin, your own guilt before a holy God, a lifetime of sin. And the grace that God puts on your life to give you salvation, a salvation you did not deserve, requiring the perfect blood of the only one who lived without sin, Jesus Christ. He takes on what we deserved and we get what he had. We are restored to a holy God. Hear it again. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped up about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. See him speaking of his death in sin. He's, he, he's in the grave. He's enshackled in sin. He's stuck there. He's tied. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is essentially the same kind of reminder, revelation, proclamation that Paul makes in the second chapter of Ephesians that we love so much. Hear it with me. See its similarities. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 8. Speaking to Christians who are saved, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This full definition outside of Christ, that we're guilty in our sin, we're dead in our sin, spiritually dead, doing the work of sin, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. This is what Jonah's describing. He's describing the depths, his entanglement. But hear the rest of Paul's words, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Praise God for his gracious intervention. May our prayers, our songs, our words throughout our days, our testimony, never get tired of testifying God's amazing, saving grace in our lives. This leads us to what Jonah says next in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. 
Jonah remembers the grace of the Lord and sees it rightly on his life. He sees God's hand on his life. He sees his sinful rebellion is corrected unto God-honoring praise and repentance. The gospel, church, needs to recenter us so that we never forget the grace of God. He gives us new life. He gives us the power to live for Him. Any moment that we are outside of the gospel, outside of grace, we forget the hand of the Lord, the grace of the Lord. We forget that we're only free, only forgiven, only eternally secure, only empowered by the grace of God. So when Jonah says, I remembered the Lord, we too need to be reminded of the absolute necessity to keep Jesus at the center of our attention, our priorities, and our thoughts. I pray that maybe that's what this is for you today. A chance to remember the Lord. To recenter yourself on the beauty of the gospel. And in that, then, get to confess the ways by which you've been rebelling against him. To do it your own way. And to recenter yourself back to what God has before you. To be reminded of the beauty of the gospel. To be reminded of where you were dead in sin and yet by grace saved unto new life. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The other side of the coin here is if I continue to give myself to these vain worthless idols, helpless idols, then I forsake this, this love, this grace. In Jonah's final words of his prayer of repentance and praise, he speaks of the reality of, of his and others' idolatry. He sees the damage it's done in his own life. He sees it clearly enough to, to speak out of the great cost by which when we give ourselves to idols, what that means to serve the idols of our hearts is to forsake the hope and the steadfast love that we have in God alone. This is the temptation of the enemy. It's the longings of our flesh to justify the things, the priorities of the horizontal and not the vertical. To overvalue the creation instead of the creator. Idolatry is so central to the outplay of our sin, we have to see it clearly the very thing that separates us from the holy God. So we got to do business with, with the things that we cling too closely to. Things that we desire too much. Things that are too important in our lives whereby they become more important to us than God himself. Question 34 in the Word of Truth Catechism asks this question. What is the sin of idolatry? Consider its answer with me. Idolatry is worshiping or finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, or security in anything other than in God, our Creator. John Calvin, 17th century reformer, made this very memorable point. It's been quoted many, many times over, essentially saying that our hearts are like idol factories. And our words and actions are shaped by the pursuit of the things our heart craves. 
Jonah's words are very helpful. Those who pay regard to vain idols. Paying regard is paying close attention to. In other words, their grip is too much on these things. Their affection is too great for vain idols. Vain here means useless, meaning they can't satisfy. They are useless to truly fulfill us. See, what we have to understand about these things is that they might not be bad in and of themselves. It might be something really good. We see this in uh, places like Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. You're like, yeah, okay, that stuff all sounds really bad. When we look at evil desires more closely, the English translators there are doing work with a Greek word that is epithumia. Epithumia there means an evil desire, but it also means an over-desire, an excessive desire. Therefore, it could mean you're desiring something evil, and in itself sinful, or you have an over or misplaced desire on something that is good. In this way, it essentially still is lust or longing or identity or purpose in something other than God. Therefore, it's idolatry. John Calvin clearly says it this way, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. So often, the object of our desires are good things. And this is where we get stuck This is where we self-justify in our sin. The good thing, for example, of caring for your body, being a good steward of your physical health, can become an idol in your life if eventually in it you start to find your personal significance and value in how you look. Uh, the good thing of your career, your job, to put food on the table, provide for your family, can become an idol in your life if in it you find your sense of happiness or security instead of in God. The good thing of raising our children can become an idol in our lives if in it we find our purpose for living We must see what Jonah is seeing here, what he's experienced here. He's seen that his pursuit of the idols of his heart, his his job status as a successful prophet, his deep love for his nation, meant forsaking more important things. The only true and lasting thing that will satisfy the steadfast love of the Lord Everything else that you bank your life in, hope in, try to find your identity in, that is of the creation, will have its end. The bottom will fall out. Your marriage has an end date. It could be the end of the day. 
by which one of your, your spouse would pass away. Your children, your, your health, your own life, your money in the bank could be gone tomorrow. These things are fleeting. They are temporary. The only lasting steadfast love is, and, and satisfaction is in the Lord himself. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Hear it. Let it wash over you. Do you see Jonah waking up from his drunken stupor by which he was drunk in idolatry? Had an overclean of temporary things in his life that caused him to forsake, to deny, to put away, to run from. The only one who can and will ongoingly satisfy God himself. I ask you, how are you forsaking the steadfast love of the Lord for the counterfeit, temporary idols of your heart that will never match up? When you wake from your drunken stupor and have your moments in the belly of the fish, Will you cry out to God in repentance and see clearly that only He can truly satisfy and begin to make the changes needed in our lives to let that be a real reflection of who we are? You will not do this unless, like Jonah, you come to your senses. Unless you see and savor the Lord again or for the first time as Jonah came to do. God is at work. And again, I I say it again, sometimes the storms in our lives are His very mercy to rattle the shelf of our temporary idols that we would cling to Him alone. There is no more precious gift he can give you than that. The question is how far deep in the ocean do you need to go before you wake up to what he's trying to show you? I am the Lord, he says. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in the darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so how does he bring us out of the the, the, the dark chambers of our lostness, of our, of, our, of our worthless idol addictions, by giving us himself, by giving us a greater affection. Thomas Chalmers said it so well years ago, there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. It's the way God wired us. The heart's desire for one particular object cannot be conquered But its desire is to have some object is unconquerable. 
The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, the goal here is not like, oh, I see my idol, I just need to get rid of it. No, no, no. The way you're wired is to put your affection, your purpose, your identity into something. And if you just remove one temporary idol, you'll fill that gap with another. So what is the way? How might we be able to, to, to do this, to, to, to conquer these things, the, the, the idols of the heart? We have to see they won't be removed. They must be replaced. Well, replaced with what? The only thing that ultimately can and does satisfy and bring joy and life and identity and purpose and security. Jesus himself. The gospel has got to go to work. It changes you from the inside out. It helps you to begin to mature and be sanctified in the application of these things. And only then do we, as our prayers change from, Lord, take all this hardship away to use me in the midst of it. Let my joy be in you. So satisfied in who you are and how you're at work that, that, that these moments and these days are used for your purposes. See, if my children are my idol, he's not calling me to love them less. He's calling me to love them rightly. And the only way I can do that is to be satisfied in the only thing that can truly satisfy. If I'm looking to be satisfied in them, I fail. The only way I can do that is to be saved by the only one who can save me. To be secured by the only one who can give me true security. To be purposed by the only one who gives me eternal purpose. Jesus himself. Don't forsake your hope by leaning on vain idols of this world, even the really good stuff. But instead, fix yourself on Jesus, who is steadfast love. And the rest of these things then will be rightly placed, ordered, lived out, and stewarded. This is the crescendo of Jonah's prayer. He, he sees and savors his God again. He couldn't be more overjoyed. And so with that, we look to verse 9 and 10. He says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is thankful for God's grace, his sovereign power and providence at work in his life for his hand in his life that will that have has kept him from from continuing to run away and brought him to true repentance to return to the Lord he is ready to sacrifice to the Lord to put it on the altar he's he, he's ready to put away what he thinks is best to do, especially regarding this situation with Nineveh and to do what God has called and commanded him to do. 
He will see through his commitment, his vow, to speak the Lord's words to whoever the Lord wills. The prophet is back. He says, I'm yours. I'm going to do your will, Lord. Jonah makes this crystal clear proclamation, in my opinion, one of the, the sweet places in all of Scripture. In the Old Testament, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. David, too, said this in Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. God himself declares in Isaiah 43.11-12, I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you were, are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Jonah proclaims from the belly of the great fish in his, this wonderful moment, in this God-ordained new beginning, salvation belongs to the Lord. We've seen this. And I ask you, do you understand? Do you know that salvation belongs to the Lord? We saw this in James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So I ask, did we perform any act or series of actions to be saved, to merit being saved? Is there any part of our salvation that we can take credit for? Is there any part of our standing before the righteous judge on judgment day whereby we will say, I'm glad I did my part? No, nothing. The scriptures say no. Again and again and again. And I love the clarity that the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 12-13 says, But to all who did receive him, they're saved. Who believed in his name, they're saved. Who he gave the right to become children of God, they're saved. Who were born. He's talking about spiritual birth there. New birth. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look at this with me. Salvation is not of blood. Nothing about your heritage is connected to your salvation. The new birth is not a matter of your heritage, of your bloodline. It's not connected to what family you're from. God's word is clear that some of his elect, some of his saved will be among the family and then he'll bring division among others. Jesus himself says this. Paul says clearly in Romans 9, 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, speaking of the, the, the heritage of Israel, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. God's elect, a people who are of every tribe, tongue, and nation, representatives. So of some families, all will be saved, and of some others, one, none would be saved. There's variation. It's not about bloodline. It also says it's not about the will of the flesh nor the will of man. The Bible teaches clearly that before we are reborn, given spiritual awakening by sovereign God, that the will of the natural man is opposed to God. We will never choose him in our natural state. 
we are enslaved in our sin. Romans 8, 7 through 8. The mind that is set on the flesh hasn't been awakened unto spiritual life by God yet. It is fleshly, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why? Because it's enslaved to sin. It's dead in sin. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus also teaches that the flesh left to itself only chooses sin, never chooses God until God, the Spirit, gives it new life. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So no, you will not stand before God and say, here's the part where I helped in my salvation. The flesh is no help at all. Many people, including myself, were taught growing up that man is free enough to choose God. This is an unbiblical view to believe in the gospel. The Bible often and clearly says that man's will is not free, as many commonly think of free will. Instead, man is the opposite of free. We are enslaved in our sin prior to God's awakening, spiritual awakening, by His providence alone. John 8.34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We must understand man's will is enslaved to sin unless it is freed by God. We do not make that choice, but we make choices every day. Every day we make choices. It just means that while we're enslaved to sin, what we choose every time is sin. Until he awakens our dead heart. And then we see and savor the gospel and choose him. But that is because of his work. Ephesians 2.1 says that we Christians were all once dead in our trespasses and sins. Not sick. Not like one day I had a good day and so I made a good choice. We're dead. We're incapacitated. We're incapable of life with God. We're spiritually dead. We're blind, the scriptures say. We're deaf. That which is dead does not act. It must be acted upon. It must first be made alive, as we read earlier in 1 Peter 1. This is why John says, Those who are saved, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.13, Romans 9.16, So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Jonah sees this more clearly than ever. His salvation, his joy, his hope for steadfast love in God, his identity is not due to anything belonging to his performance, his nationality, his faithfulness, his virtue, It belongs to God alone. He always has been, is, and always will be utterly desperate for the Lord. The vital question before each of us today is, are you utterly desperate for the Lord Jesus alone? Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. 
Do you see that you have nothing to boast in but God who saves by his amazing grace? May our lives shout the good news of the sovereign Lord and his amazing grace until he calls us home. May we join Jonah in proclaiming that salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you're here today or you're listening later on the podcast and you are still in your sin, you are still the Lord of your own life, I pray it is God's will to give you eyes to see your sin today, to confess it before him, to see the beauty of the gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus in your place, to trust in Jesus as the Lord of your life, to serve him the rest of your days. And you too then will join us in testifying salvation belongs to the Lord. May it be so. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your holy work in this time as we study your holy word, as, we, as, as it's preached, as it's heard, as we digest it. Move mightily, not just in the hearing, but in the processing, in the... In the in what you want to have done with it, in the action that comes forth, that what we don't have this morning is just wasted emotion, but that there is action. We're not hearers only, but doers. That where we see sin, we would confess it as sin. We would be humbled. We would we'd show our desperation for Jesus alone. We would, we would repent. We would take up a new path that honors you. Have a new devotion to God first and foremost in our days and in our week. Thank you for all who made the commitment to start this week by giving their first fruits to you, Lord, by showing up here to worship and to fellowship and to study together. That every day we'd wake up and give you our first fruits, that, that our lives would be for you, for your will to be done. We, we join Jonah in just praising you for this gospel truth that salvation belongs to you. And we're desperate for you. We have no salvation without you. And so we rejoice in your grace. It sets us free. Help us to be people who pray. People who enjoy our relationship with you and walk and talk with you, Lord. Hear us now in our, in our song, in our, in our praises, and in our testimony as we leave this place today and head into our week. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.